All right, welcome to Just a Book Club, where we talk about books that are just books. They're not literature, they're just books. Yeah, there's nothing valuable in them whatsoever, and we have nothing to talk about for the next half hour or so. Let's get into it. Welcome to Just a Book Club. I'm Rowan Constantine. And I'm Alex Delbar. And today we are going to be re-discussing Animorphs Book 4, The Message. Brief summary just to get us going. Told from Cassie's perspective, the group meets after Cassie and Tobias have a dream where they feel someone calling them from the ocean. And Jake sees a news report where someone found a piece of Andalite wreckage on the beach. The gang uses dolphin morphs to attempt to go investigate, but are distracted. Cassie telepathically connects with a whale, who is able to describe the location of the call. When they eventually investigate the source, they discover that an Andalite youth nicknamed Axe has been trapped in the, at the bottom of the ocean. They rescue Axe, who joins the group. So that's a, that's a very bare-bones summary. Was there anything that stuck out to you this time around? So now that I see that this book, the fourth book, is set in the ocean, Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's a series about morphing into all kinds of different animals. I'm curious now if each book is going to be set in a different natural environment and what that will do thematically, what it's going to bring up in terms of theme, what it's going to bring up in terms of uh, character development, and how the environment that they're in is going to affect that. With this one here taking place in the ocean, I'm curious if you, I'm curious if you saw any additional themes or character development that were affected or enhanced by it being set in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think there are a couple. For one thing, the the first thing that comes to mind is the the continued development of Tobias's kind of alienation and the way that he struggles with that. Mm-hmm. Tobias can't morph. And at this point, he isn't able to follow them at all. Right? He their their destination is too far away from land for him to be able to like maintain flight and stay with them while they do their thing which is kind of a first you know he was he was still close by in his book but yeah this time around he he can't be there he can't be around he can't survey he can't participate and you know it it really hits home i think it you can tell that the characters are kind of hurt by that uh not offended but just they don't they don't feel great about having to leave Tobias behind. And the second thing that that I think is interesting to me is that it seems to be the the animal that they have the most trouble maintaining control over is this dolphin, right? Mm. Even though we know that, you know, Marco has inhabited a gorilla which would seem a lot more similar, right? The main problem with the dolphin is that their intelligence is so developed 
that it is difficult to tell where the dolphin intelligence ends and the human intelligence begins. Mm. And they really struggle with that. I mean, it's hard to know, right? Because we didn't get that story from Marco's perspective. But it seemed like Marco was pretty in control, right? And you, you could put that to the, the writer finding their own voice, of course, and, and the story kind of developing as it goes. But I think there's something interesting there that it, it says something about how we connect to our natural world, right? That for some reason, you know, these kids, perhaps people on a greater scale, look at and perceive dolphins and think, ah, like this is a playful, fun child that I can relate to. I can project onto it in a way that is a lot harder to do with an adult gorilla that, you know, is, is big and strong and could kill you very easily. And there's a strong danger associated with gorillas that is maybe not there with dolphins that perhaps has to do with how we project our perceptions of these animals onto them. Was this, I just wonder if the authors originally meant this to be an environmentalist animal rights directed series. Um, I wonder if that's just, I just wonder what, what one of the, I just wonder what the intentions are. I wonder if mm -hmm. as they're writing it, they want younger audiences to be more aware of, of animals and to grow a fondness for animals and for the natural world. I am at first inclined to say yes, because it's so, it's just so literally on the cover. It's so centered around animals. But then I think about how much are we really learning about animals through all this? Like, it just seems like a lost opportunity to also be so educational and to learn so much about these animals and their habitats mm -hmm. because they're literally turning into animals. And so it's just, and so you've got a human brain inside of an animal body. So it would be such a great educational opportunity to, you know, with a unique way to describe what these animals are doing and how they function and cool facts about them and how they live in their habitat. So then I think maybe not. Maybe if that was really one of the main purposes of the series, then we would have a lot more of that. And we, we don't really. The focus really is their mission, their struggle against the, the Yerks. And I think I'd have to probably vote that no, that wasn't one of the main intentions. Yeah, I definitely don't think that like a cyber chase or Zabumafu type educational approach was the goal mm -hmm. you do kind of see some of that right uh as they're describing the the behaviors and desires of these animals as they're perceiving them right you you don't get a ton though you're right there i think this brings up an interesting point though it's interesting that you are bringing up this conversation in cassie's book mm. and i wonder about that because this is something that I've been thinking about a lot with this book is how well Applegate manages 
at this point, we're still reading books that are that are written fully by K. A. Applegate. They're ghostwritten later on in the series, as I understand it. But for now, she's the one writing, and I'll probably continue to use her credit as the series continues, just because it's simpler. She does such an amazing job of capturing the individual voice and perspective of each character. And I think that is very well demonstrated by the fact that in the book that you, that is narrated by the environmentalist, you are suddenly craving more environmentalist stuff. Mm. And it's important to acknowledge that these are kids, right? And so we're, we're getting a, the perspective of, of an 11, maybe a 12-year-old. Um, I don't know if the age is ever specifically mentioned. I haven't seen it from what I remember. You know, the environmental perspectives are not the environmental perspectives of an adult. They're the environmental perspectives of a child. And so they might not be as well-developed as someone who has been studying this their whole lives or something, right? But I do think it's very interesting that you have this relationship with this story specifically. This could have come up book or the book before right it could have come up in tobias's book where it's all about living and existing in an environment and understanding this animal and being okay with kind of being that animal right mm -hmm. there's a lot of discussion that could have been had there about environmentalism and how we relate to and understand animals didn't really come up though it came up in the book about the environmentalist mm. that is fascinating i wonder as well if it was so much more educational if it if it did feel more like a national geographic or eyewitness or bill nye esque series if it would be as effective mm -hmm. because when you are 9 10 11 years old as much as you love to learn sometimes when learning is thrust on you, you retaliate from it uh, or retaliate against it. And so I wonder if, because this really stays more true to a story and a narrative rather than inserting interesting facts about animals, I wonder if that ends up fostering more of a love of animals and an interest in animals. You know, if I had a magic wand and could conduct an instant survey, I'd love to, you know, see who identifies as an animal enthusiast or environmentalist and then trace back and see if the majority of them came across these books when they were kids in the United States and read them. And, you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily teach them all about the life of a dolphin and their very specific diet and their mating rituals but maybe it's what starts the interest and then they go on to some other resource that has more information about it but maybe these stories maybe the excitement of the animorphs which involve animals is what kickstarts it all for kids yeah i think there's something really important to that as well that there is a poetry to the way that these kids are connecting with animals that you might not get in a more explicitly educational description, right? If the author was primarily concerned with the facts, 
and not so much with the way that we perceive these these animals that they're morphing into and the way that we interact with them. If the author was just concerned with like, here are some cool animal facts. This is how they're doing. Moving on. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would foster that same interest, not only because of the retaliation aspect, but because you can know a lot about a thing without empathizing with it or connecting to it. Mm -hmm. Right. You can, I, I interact with a lot of hunters at my job. Mm -hmm. I have for a while now. I live in an area where hunting is a, is a very popular hobby and sport, I guess is the, is the right description. Um, even if that feels a little off, some of the people I've talked to are very empathetic towards the animals that they hunt. I knew a guy who swore up and down that some elk were spirits mm. because he would track them and they would just be gone. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and he had this very spiritual relationship with the animals that he hunted. I know other people who put a lot of effort into studying their habits and studying where they go and what they do and how they do it and know a lot about these animals so that they can hunt and kill them. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's the end of the relationship for them. Yeah. And so you can know a lot, but knowledge does not create empathy. Mm. Knowledge does not create connection. And so if you're trying to encourage knowledge, a really good way to do that is to start with empathy and connection. Hmm. And from there you can say, okay, now that you, now that you like really connect to this dolphin in this way, now that you, the reader have vicariously morphed into a dolphin for two hours, mm -hmm. go check it out. Maybe you want to learn more. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. Gosh, what a big question. If knowledge of something doesn't necessarily invoke empathy then what does and i suppose this series is teaching us that you have to have the experience first that when you have an experience with something a real connection with something then that invokes empathy so that makes me think a lot about conflicts all around the world refugees being displaced from their homes and war-torn cities and famines, whether that's happening internationally, whether that's happening, uh, whether there's trauma here in the United States. If it's not something that you've experienced yourself, but you know about it because you've heard about it on the news, knowing about it happening just isn't enough. For most people, they have to have some kind of experience with it some kind of connection they have to morph into the animal and live through the animal's eyes in order to have that empathy i have no idea how you do that i have no <laughs> idea how you i don't know what advice i would give to someone if they said well i i want to care more about what's happening in country x and what's happening to people y but I know it's happening because I watch the news, but I just don't care enough to donate. I don't care enough to write to my politicians to make change Z. So what do you 
tell them? How do they create that connection or have that experience with someone far away from them? Yeah, that's a, that's a really rough question. I think, you know, maybe I'm being a little pessimistic here, but I do think that there is value in understanding what you can do, what you are capable of, you know, in these books, you know, we are talking about children who are discovering that they are more capable than they thought. Mm -hmm. They're being asked to do more than they expected. And that's a really valuable lesson, but we are also seeing the ways in which they fall short. We see that they don't manage to bring the Yerk ship down exactly how they wanted to. That mission is not an especially educational one in terms of learning more about the Yerks. We see them fail to rescue Jake's brother, and they have to live with that. And sometimes I wonder if part of this conversation has to be that kind of biblical New Testament, like wanting to believe, wanting to empathize, wanting to help. If that is really all you can do, is sometimes enough. Interesting. And it's not enough in the real world, because nothing is enough. It won't be enough until the problem is solved. But if you have a finite amount of time and attention and ability, it's up to you where you spend that time and attention and ability. And it's important to recognize that you can't do everything. You can't save everyone. You can't save Tom. You can try, but you might not. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you should stop caring, right? Jake doesn't abandon the whole thing once he fails to save Tom. He keeps going. You know, he has hope and faith that, that he will eventually. Mm -hmm. That was another thing that kind of came up in this book, I think, as well, if, if you don't mind me switching topics a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was this, this discussion of their dream, Cassie and Tobias's shared dream. So we have this shared dream that they have where someone is calling for help from the ocean. Jake sees on the news that someone found a little piece of metal that has Andalite writing on it that he recognizes from being in the ship on the, in the first book. And that's all they have to go off of. And it becomes Cassie's decision whether or not they continue. It, it becomes Cassie's decision whether or not to trust the dream that she had and to keep moving forward or to abandon it and say, oh, it was just my imagination. It just, weird coincidences, right? Crazy. Me and Tobias had the same dream. So weird. Mm. And even though, even though there is a piece of evidence to, dis, you know, to support her claim, it still has to become, in many ways, an act of faith. And I don't mean that in a necessarily uniquely Christian sense, but just in the sense that we all, that I, I do think in many ways that the concept of faith is very human right we have to act on things that we don't know that we don't know for sure and to not act in this case would have meant the death potentially of this this andalite youth who is additionally a, a brother to the person who gave them their powers in the first place it would have meant a victory for their enemies 
It would have meant a lot of things, right? Their choice to act in faith, right, in, in, in a belief in something they don't fully understand or know, was hugely beneficial. Mm-hmm. But it had to come, they, they had to make the jump, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if the word faith has too much religious weight for us, we can just replace that word with hope, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's the crazy thing about us humans, right, is that we can hope for something that we, like you said, that we don't fully understand. You know, you and I can have a dream about the same thing, which implies someone underneath the surface of the ocean needs desperate help. And we don't fully understand it. It could just be a coincidence. But we hope that there's something we can do to help this person. And so we act on it, even though we don't know for sure. Yeah. And that's what motivates us to do all sorts of good things that we never would have done otherwise. You know, I hope that this money I donate to this cause will do some kind of good. I hope that calling this friend every week who is struggling with a mental illness is going to do some kind of good. It's going to actually help them. There's lots of stuff we don't know, but we just hope that it's going to do good. And that, for us, is motivation enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's... You know, I think in many ways that's at the core of this story, right? Is, you know, that hope, right? They, they hope that they, can, that they can win. They don't have a chance, but they hope that they can. Mm-hmm. They, e- even when you, when you expand, right? When you, when you kind of leave the literal events of the story, the whole story is based on a hope. It's based on a hope that, that animals are in some way similar enough to us that we can connect to them. Mm. That there is some way in which the way that we project ourselves onto these animals is valuable, is useful, right? That the way that all of us kind of morph into other things can, can save us in a way, right? This, this empathy, we hope that that can be valuable. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a quote from uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, Terry Pratchett, in in the book Hogfather, which is an amazing Christmas book. If uh, if you ever want to read a fun fantasy satire Christmas book, mm. where um, they're they're describing the purpose of this this Santa Claus stand in the Hogfather, and it it basically says like. The, the, the character describing this principle leads the other character that he's having a conversation with to this conclusion that, um, that the Hogfather, Santa Claus, is a lie. And the kids need to believe in those lies. They need to believe in, in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Because believing in those lies is a step towards believing in bigger lies. Truth, justice, mercy, that sort of thing. And the other character says, oh, but those are real. And he's like, oh, yeah? Grind up the universe into the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and find me one iota 
of mercy, one atom of justice. These things aren't real in, in a tangible way that we can measure or perceive. And yet we hope that they can have some effect on the world. Mm-hmm. That, we can, that we can place upon the world some sense, some logic, some reason for, for existing, right? And maybe there is one. But we don't know that. We hope it. Mm-hmm. But because we hope it, it becomes real. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening to Just a Book Club. I'm Rowan Constantine. I'm Alex Delbar. Join us next week on Wednesday for Animorphs Book 5, The Predator. We'll see you then. This episode of Just a Book Club was edited and audio engineered by Delbar Media. The original theme song was written by Alex Delbar.